Bibles to uh, James chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. So, for those of you who were here a couple weeks ago before uh, we canceled because of snow, we talked about uh, the first part of chapter 4 where James kind of starts to get into these quarrels and fights that people have in the body, and then he kind of shifts gears to start to discuss um, our allegiance to God and that he demands it all from us. And so he, he does that in the first part of chapter 4, and then here he kind of brings it back to uh, a couple, really just one concrete expression of how we show that. And kind of before we get into this this morning, I just kind of want us to step back and think again about why we're in James and what it is that that he's, at least I feel like he's been showing me as we've been going through the book, and that's that at the beginning, we kind of set out on this uh, this theme of imperative grace, and that's just the reality that James gives us all these commands, right? One right after another. And yet, even though he's giving us these commands, they're given to us in this environment of grace. Uh, this week, as elders, we talked a bit about just the idea of assurance of our salvation and our security in him. And just that there's this reality in scripture that we are saved by grace, you know, completely uh, independent from our merit or anything that we could do, and yet at the same time, there is obedience that's required from us. And just how there's these these two things which seem like you can't fit them together, but uh, in uh, the mystery of God's Word and in the mystery of the Gospel, they do fit together. And so like these commands to us today in James, they're communicated to us in grace, right? We're saved by grace alone. And yet, he expects us, he expects his, his audience to do what he says, right? Not because of what he says, but because the Lord is speaking through him to these people through his, his writing. And so let's just kind of have that in the back of our minds as we look at the specific issue of speaking evil against one another. And we're also going to do something maybe slightly different today in that uh, we've got a small passage, just two verses, We've also got a slightly smaller crowd. And so we're going to take advantage of both of those things by, uh, I'm going to go through the text kind of fairly quickly, not incredibly quick, but we're going to go through and talk about a couple things. And then I want us to discuss together how we might apply this passage. First, how we might actually do what it says not to do as a body, and then what we should do instead. So let's walk through that together. Let's start by reading the passage. Again, it's James 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us who you are. That you are the lawgiver. You are the judge. You are the one, the only one who is righteous. And yet, it also tells us that you are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. That you shower us with your grace in Christ. We pray that this morning that we would see more of who you are in your word and that we would recognize who we are and that we are people who are underneath it. We are people that need to apply your standard to ourselves, not people that can set a standard to apply to others. I pray that your Spirit would work in us as we seek to learn together uh, from your Word about how we can be uh, a body of believers who are more glorifying to you 
and more representative of the gospel to the world around us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. The main idea in this verse is really the first sentence. It's just, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. That's what James is trying to communicate. That's what he wants them to get. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. Brothers here, it's a collective term to refer to the body of Christ that he's writing to. So it's not just guys, it's not just men, it's everybody in the church. Don't speak evil against one another. And then he explains this command that he's giving them. And so to figure out here exactly what he's saying to them, we really need to answer two questions before we talk together about kind of what to do about this passage. And those two questions are, what does it mean to speak evil against someone else? And then the second question would be, why is it wrong? Why is it sinful for us to do that? And we're going to answer the second question first, because it's, first of all, it's the one that he spends more time on. And it also helps us understand the answer to the first one. So the second question was, why is it wrong? Why is it sinful for us to speak evil against one another? If, if it's not, then James wouldn't care to tell us that. Clearly it's important because he spends this time in his letter to write it. So he tells us, don't do it. And the reason why comes in the rest of the verse. And there's two reasons. The first one has to do with the law or this, this standard of righteousness, and the second one has to do with the one that gives the law. So he says, the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. I don't know about you, but at first that's exceptionally confusing to me. Right? Why does he, why does he bring up the law here? How does me saying something evil against, say, Sean here, uh, how does that make me someone who judges the law? In order to understand that, we get to figure out what it is that James is thinking about when he's writing this. Because he's, he's bringing to bear, right, this, this whole worldview that he has that we don't have. So I want to read a passage to you, which, I'm sorry, I forgot to put it on the slides, but it's Leviticus 19. And I think that this passage is kind of what's in James's mind, what he's thinking about as he's writing. It's Leviticus 19, verses 16 through 18. This is what he says. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Slanderer means to speak evil against someone else. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that last part we're probably familiar with, right? Where Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's because Jesus picks that up in the Gospels and says that this is the second greatest command, really part of a package greatest command, right? We love uh, God with all that we are, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the greatest commandment for us. And so Jesus picks up Leviticus, and James here is, I think, picking up the same idea. And he's expanding, he's talking about the negative side, what we do when we're not loving our neighbor. And the reason why I think that this is what James is doing is because of what he says in the rest of the passage, right? He talks about the law, and then he says, uh, sorry, at the very end he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? So he brings up the idea of this law of slander. He brings up the idea of neighbor all in the same passage. And I think he's referring to this Leviticus passage, which all of his readers that were Jewish and him as a Jewish person would have been familiar with. Right? Jesus doesn't bring this up and emphasize it in the Gospels because it's this isolated, unfamiliar passage in the Old Testament. He brings it up because it was crucial to who they were as people, that that's how they were supposed to treat one another. So here, James is saying that when we do these things, when we speak evil against someone else, it's wrong because what we're doing in those moments is we are placing ourselves above this standard that God has created for his people. Right? We're not to be slanderers. We're to be people who love our neighbor as ourselves. And whenever we choose not to do that, and instead do the opposite, we're saying we know better than the law. 
Our standard is more important than the law. That's why James says that we become a judge of the law. We become a slanderer of the law. And he says, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. I think it's interesting that this tension between you know, loving our neighbor as ourself and slandering that, you know, one, we would say uh, in our kind of contemporary American Christian language is a sin of omission, right? If I don't do something to serve my neighbor, it's just a sin of omission, right? I didn't, I didn't do something good that I was supposed to do. But if I slander them, if I walk out of my front yard and say, hey, you, you're an idiot, and go back inside. That's a sin of commission, right? I did something active against him. And most people would look at those two things and say, you know, me calling him an idiot is a, is a really bad thing. I shouldn't do that. Those kinds of sins are worse. Me just not actively loving him, you know, I should do it, but it's not that important. And the reality is that by James putting these things side by side and by them being side by side in Leviticus, what we realize is that there's really not that distinction there. Right? Whenever we are not doing something that we should be doing, we are committing sin. The two go hand in hand. If instead of going out in my front yard and screaming at my neighbor, I was actively loving him, I wouldn't do the other thing. So the reason why it's wrong in the first place for us to speak evil against someone else is because we're elevating ourselves above the standard and living by one that God doesn't give us. And that leads into the second one. Really, that kind of first reason why it's wrong only matters because of the second one. And that's what he says in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? His point is, his standard matters. The only reason why the law is important, the only reason why God's word is important is because it's God's. Right? If I walk into your workplace and say, I think for you to be a good employee, you need to do these five things. Maybe because we're friends, you might think, I should think about doing those things. But the reality is the standard you care about at your job is not mine, but your boss's. Right, if I walked into your classroom and said, to get an A in this class, you need to do these six things. You would say, that's not what the syllabus says. To get an A, I need to do these things. The standard only matters because the one who sets the standard has the authority to set that standard. That's what James is saying here. The law isn't important because it's the law. It's important because it's God's law. And he is able to save or to destroy I can't do that, and you can't do that. And so we don't have the right to set that kind of standard for people. But the reality is that that's how we act when we do these things. When we speak evil against someone else, what we're really saying is that we want to have the authority to set the standard over them so that we can determine what happens to them in the long term. We want to be God to them. That's why we say the things that we do and think the things that we do and act the way that we do towards them because we want to have authority over them that we just don't have. Who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer to that question is, we're nobody. I don't have any right to condemn you and speak evil against you, and you don't have any right to condemn me and speak evil against me. That's, that's his job. It's sinful Because whenever we do these things, we're not just creating some fake standard. What we're doing is we're living and acting and believing in such a way that's completely out of step with the gospel. Instead of applying a standard of grace to people, we're acting as if in order for them to be right, in order for them to be good, in order for them to be upstanding in our circles, they need to do what we want them to do. They need to live the way we think they should live. They need to do what we think they should do. And if they don't do those things, then they're not worth anything to us. 
right? The, the simple fact that God created them in his image means that he has the right to apply a standard to them. The fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for them means that he has even more of a right to do that. And whenever we put ourselves in his place, we're saying none of that matters. We want him to do with them what we want him to do. I think that like if, if we would, instead of just slandering someone or speaking evil against them, and we're going to talk about what that is more specifically in just a minute, but if we would just say what we really mean theologically, I think we would do it a lot less. Right? If instead of saying, you know, that guy's a horrible parent, and I just don't like him, what if instead we said, God... I wish that you would just unmake them. I wish you would just get it over with and kill them and send them to hell. I don't care enough about them to do what your word calls me to do, but that's what I want. The reality is when we slander people, when we speak evil against them, that's, that's what we we're feeling in our heart. Who he is and what he's done for them does not matter to us more than whatever reason we're writing them off and speaking evil against them. And so let's just say what we really mean. God, I think you really screwed up on them when you created them. And Jesus, you just, you just wasted your blood on that person. Just let them die. Because they don't matter to me, so they shouldn't matter to you. Speaking evil against someone is wrong because we apply a standard that we don't have the authority to apply. We put ourselves in his place and we completely throw out the gospel for our own opinions. And we do that whenever we speak evil. What he means here by speaking evil, this word, like I said in Leviticus, it's also slandering. And I think specifically what it is, is it's, 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 it's any communication against someone else uh, sinfully that damages their reputation. Slander specifically is saying something about someone else that damages their reputation, but I think it's important for us to insert the word sinfully there. Right? Because sometimes as believers, we're required by God's word to say things to people or about people that could hurt their reputation. Just to give you an example of that, James did it last week, or last, or last passage in James, right? He called these people murderers and adulterers and double-minded and sinners. Those are harsh words, right? If I called one of you an adulterer, it would probably bother you if I really meant it. But he's doing that because he's calling out the sin in their hearts, and it's right for him to do it. It's commanded for him to do it. In Matthew 18 and 2 Thessalonians 3, in different places in the New Testament, we as believers are required to call out sin in each other's lives. We need that. Because when we sin, our tendency is to withdraw from people and withdraw from community, especially Christian community. And so I need you and you need me to come into each other's lives and speak truth when we're rebelling from God. And so don't hide behind a passage like this or a passage like Matthew 7 and say, you know, you can't say what I'm doing is wrong because the Bible says not to. If you're in sin, then someone should tell you you're in sin. But they should do it in love. I think that's what James does in chapter 4. And so specifically here, it's speaking evil doing something sinfully. It's communicating in a way that's sinful, in a way that damages their reputation. More specifically, it's saying something that shows that we don't view them or we don't view ourselves in light of the gospel. Right? I'm not understanding myself in light of who God is and what he's done for me when I say something evil against you. And I'm also not understanding you in those terms. Because to me, you're just a target. 
I think the most important thing for us to get out of this, when he talks about, you know, what speaking evil is and why we shouldn't do it, is that James isn't directing this outside the church. Right? He's not saying don't speak evil against the other people around you in your city. He's saying do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Later, I think he expands it to neighbor. It includes everybody, but specifically here, his focus is on the church. So I think the the question that I have um, is, and this is a real question, is what ways do you think that we as a church struggle with this? And what ways do we speak evil against one another as a body? I mean, the reality is it happens. It happened in James's audience. It happens at BC. Or are we just perfect on this and we don't ever do it? And just to be clear, I'm not necessarily, if you want to just throw one out, that's great, but I'm not asking for specific examples. Like, I said this about Neil's video five minutes ago. General. For me, I think what happens is people have different views of how they take things. Yeah. And so they may uh, have a friend or a group of friends within their church or body of people that they, you know, uh, worship with that they already share something in common with. So therefore, they feel confident to share their thoughts and personal ideas and opinions with the, that person or people. And sometimes that will cause people to group up yeah. and it builds separation in, in churches. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that we see that here too, that, you know, we'll... Uh, you know, one group of people will agree on one thing, another group of people will have a different opinion on it that may be even contradictory to them. And there are times when, I don't know, tensions could get heated between those two groups. Like, for example, people that, uh, like Jen and I send Dinah to public school, the Campbell's homeschool. And, you know, there are times when we're at home and we're like, yeah, you know, those crazy homeschool kids, they're, we don't really say that <laughs> anymore. Uh, and they could be like, what are the borns thinking? You know, sending their kid out there to public school. She's going to get all crazy. And uh, I think she's in here, so I'm not going to say how it's going. I think instead of having the faith to confront others about sin that you might see in their life, you just talk about it with someone else and feel like you address the sin in that person's life that you were talking about, but you're not having the faith to confront that person, the sinner, and that God will change them and bring restoration and, and growth in their life. Instead, you, you feel like, well, I talked about it with someone, so yeah. that's... Yeah. Gossip under the guise of, I just really need some advice about how to help this person grow. Let's say there's... Uh, <clears throat> In Leviticus, where it says to reason frankly, we don't often make it to the point of reasoning frankly. We watch something and watch it and watch it, and then we're like, I just can't help but say something. And then we will like over the top our response instead of graciously and lovingly identifying an issue. Like, I've waited too long. By the way, I'm writing these down because we're going to come back to them, not because I'm ignoring people. Dan, sometimes you ignore people. Sometimes I do ignore people. I'm just saying this is not one of those moments. For me, sometimes my approach, how I approach somebody about how I when we try to do what James does in calling out sin, but do it in a poor way. I, you can ask my wife. I do that all the time. 
I think in setting like my own standards against people, um, a lot of times I view non-sin issues as sin issues. I think as a woman, when our feelings get hurt, we seek justification in why our feelings got hurt to other women. I think that that can put a bad light on whoever it is that hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. Anybody have anything else? I have a question about uh, <clears throat> talks about uh, like we were talking about slander mm -hmm. and um, uh, what about making making judgments? I mean, when you're um, it kind of sets you up like you're saying above the law as you're making judgments about someone else, especially uh, when they are not part of the law that uh, we're supposed to be. Um, seeking to carry out, um, but just, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think, what is, how do you judge without judging in the bad sense that this is talking about? Because all, we all have opinions, yeah. sometimes those opinions set us up contrary to the law because we haven't got the right view on things, you know, so we mm -hmm. all recognize we all have a judgment formed, but how do we do that without... Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's I think it's similar here, and I mean he, James uses the Sermon on the Mount all over the place, but it's really similar to Matthew seven, which is you know one of the most quoted passages to Christians from non Christians, which is you know judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, but then it says like the same measure that you use to judge others will be used against you, and I think really what he's talking about there is not that we don't make judgments because. We make judgments all the time, right? Should I have water or milk for breakfast? Like, that's a decision based on facts. I'm making a judgment. We don't call that. Uh, but, you know, should I go over to these people's house for dinner or not? Like, we're making decisions based on uh, evidence or whatever. Um, so I don't think he's saying, like, don't ever make decisions. Or don't ever think things about people because... We're supposed to discern things like that. And so I, I think it's more a condemning. It's a, it's a verdict, not a decision. And specifically one uh, with regard to their righteousness or unrighteousness. And I think what he's, what he's saying here is more uh, not necessarily the speaking evil is communicating that judgment out loud, but it represents that one has already been at least made in us about them. And that's why we're saying those things. Um, but your other question, at least I think, uh, was, and that was very similar to what you said back there about how do we do that in a right way? And I think that's the, that's the next question that I have is, uh, so we've got all these things, um, examples of ways in which we as a body struggle with speaking evil against one another. And I think the tendency for us is to hear this word and just to try not to do it. Uh, but, you know, I can tell you from myself, and especially my children who have revealed it in me more, is that when you tell them not to do something, what do they do? They do it, right? Don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that. Like, they're consumed with the idea of touching whatever it is. Uh, unless it's the vacuum, and then our kids are mostly terrified of it. 
And so like if we just walk around this week and are consumed with thoughts of not speaking evil against someone, one of two things is either going to happen. Either we're going to be thinking about all the evil things that we could say all week and finally one of them is going to slip out, or we're just going to be thinking evil thoughts. So the alternative is to think, what is, what is the opposite of this? Right? We need to get something else in our heads and in our mouths and in our lives so that we can fight this. And I mean, the, the alternative to speaking evil against someone is speaking uh, I mean, good, but more specifically than good would be truth, and I think more specifically than truth would be the truth of the gospel. Like, that's what's supposed to be on our mouth. That's what, how we love our neighbors, is by speaking things that communicate those kinds of ideas. And so that's, I think, how we make those judgments, right? James isn't calling them adulterers and sinners and double-minded and murderers because he's just mean, mean to them, just because he doesn't like them. He's trying to wake them up to the fact that their sin is alienating them from God. So I think that when we approach conversations with people uh, of those kinds of natures, our, our attitude isn't going to be sinful or harsh, but is going to be one that communicates the grace that we've applied to ourselves first, and then we're applying to them. Uh, and that's, that for me is the answer to this passage, is what we do is we uh, think first, how can I be speaking the gospel to people all the time? But then specifically, we think about the ways in which we struggle individually and as a body with doing these things, and how can we instead address those things with the gospel. So the uh, example of you know, groups of people within the church who have different opinions on a specific issue, how can we apply the gospel to that? And that's a real question. Like, what would be a way to understand those situations in light of the gospel? What would be a way to understand like that specific example of uh, people with different opinions within the body, you know, maybe having a tendency to treat others poorly? Uh, how can we apply the gospel to that? I think it is a, it is a especially it's a theological issue. Like you give the other person grace, and you say, "Well, we might have a different opinion on something, but." I need to trust that they are they are trying to honor God's word and, and find truth in the text and, and we may have kind of come at that from different ways, but let's try and let's try and find the truth together and kind of look at it as a mutualistic thing. Let's let's find the truth together. Let's see we're we're at different spots right now, but we're both striving to seek the truth of the gospel. Yeah. I think that, that that kind of attitude is born out of a recognition that we don't know everything and don't have all the answers. Like we're seeing ourselves as people who need to grow too, which is, is viewing us and them in light of the gospel and approaching it from that perspective. So yeah, I think the other side is thinking of something about what we were talking about standards and uh, family recently the other week when we kind of brought this up. But um, I think we speak the gospel to ourselves to make sure that we're not applying standards from someone else and they're not even applying to us. So when you look at parenting and marriage or those things, some, like, some people have, have strong convictions about those things. Um, and sometimes your brother or your sister um, is, is not attempting to apply that to you, but they have such a strong conviction about it. People can fall into this thing like, oh, you get condemned or you're trying to compare yourself to them and how to do this. I think that's another more proactive side of this. It's also to speak the gospel yourself and realize assuming good intent for one but also having your identity in Christ and all that stuff. Yeah, making sure that we're not like viewing whatever decisions we make in a non-gospel-centered way and then taking those and applying them to others. Yeah, I think that's great. It's really helpful. Going back to what you were saying about making sure we know what we're not going to call it's good for us to, in those moments where we're having those discussions, when we realize gospel, how people fight in outside of situations, making sure that we're praying for wisdom in that situation. Uh, there's a lot of times where I'll have conversations with someone, I know I might be the smartest one in the room. 
but I also know that they're going to ask a question that I don't have the answer to. Uh, or vice versa, like I'm talking to somebody and they're presenting an argument that I know is incorrect, but I don't know how to articulate what the truth is there. Just praying for wisdom in a situation where uh, we know that we have an opportunity to make a difference or to spread the gospel and just making sure that we're not just relying on our wisdom there, it's that we're actually seeking the wisdom of God. And praying would be a moment of prayer that we're probably teaching that position rather than just relying on book knowledge or whatever you have in the back pocket. Wisdom is coming from the correct place. Yeah, I think that's that's super, like for me, that's a helpful clarification on what Daniel said about like coming together and saying like, let's learn together. Because whenever I say that to people, I think once we hang out for a little bit and we look at these things, you'll see that I'm right. Uh, but to instead like adopt the posture of saying like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean in in humility to thinking I'm wrong. Like being willing to hear from them in a, I'm not just trying to convince you that I'm right kind of way. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, having a having a body in which you know there are no issues that we can't discuss together, um, because we've made peace even if we disagree. Instead of just like, oh, the Campbells are coming over for dinner tonight, so let's not talk about school. Anything else? You don't want that conflict. There's not conflict there, at least that I'm aware of. But like that, that can be the tendency, just to say like, you know. <laughs> With these groups of people, like we can't talk about these issues, and like that's not that's not peace. That's you're just being fake. You're being hypocrites. Unity is one through peacemaking. What about uh, something like gossip? Like how do we how do we apply the gospel to specifically to the issue of gossip? about that um, Christ presents the best of us to God, that we should be like Christ and be presenting the best of people to other people, not gossiping and presenting a poor image of them to other people. Yeah. Do you guys all hear that? 
that uh, I'm going to sum it up poorly, but just that uh, you know we're called in in Christ to uh, represent people in the best way we can to others, and so when we gossip about them, we're not doing that. We're doing the opposite of that, and it's usually so that we look better than we are. When we heard Matt Chandler talking about this is in marriage, but he he was encouraging spouses to be um, an expert in your your counterpart's strengths, like uh, because usually when we gossip, we're comparing our strengths with someone else's weaknesses, and those aren't the same fruit. Like we're we're not saying how how we're weak. And, and then there's their weaknesses. We're usually saying, I would never say something like that, or I can't yeah. believe that they would do this or that, and because yeah. I would never. And yeah. uh, you're not comparing the same things there. You're comparing. Yeah. It's really... It's really, it's really insightful, yeah. The, we, and I think that's one of the reasons why we talk about it when they're not there anyway, is because we're setting ourselves up to be winners of an argument that's one-sided. I would say it might sound slightly antithetical, but frankly and lovingly calling people out when we hear it. Uh, yeah. Because I need someone to call me out because sometimes I think I'm just telling an amusing anecdote. Yeah. Yeah, I think on a, you know, a Sunday school answer level, uh, like we should do that because we're called to. Right? If If you see your brother in sin, you are commanded by Jesus to address it. Period. It's so like whenever, whenever we don't do that, like we're sinning, we're being disobedient. So like the very fact that we're gossiping means we've already skipped steps and someone needs to be gossiping about us in our sin. Really, no one should be gossiping, but we need someone to call us out for not calling that person out. And I think that right there is a great way for us to address gossip if we're gossiped too. Someone comes to you and tells you something they shouldn't say, you don't need to be telling me that, you need to be telling them that. It might be awkward, it might be uncomfortable. They might not tell you those juicy bits of information anymore. But that's the answer to gossip. I think we do that in grace, we do that in love, or else we're back in the first category. But that should be our response. I do, I do think, I want to say this too, that there is room for a truly uh, wisdom-sinking counsel with others. Right? If you've got to address a really significant issue in somebody's life, there, I don't think anything wrong with seeking a fellow brother out and saying, this is going on. I've got to address it. Can you help me with this? Uh, I do think in those situations it might be wise to be anonymous if we can be. Uh, if you can't be, then just make sure it stays confidential. But I, I do think we can get assistance from others. And that's, I mean, I think we're commanded to do that in Scripture too, is to seek wise counsel. And so I'm not saying that you just address it with him. You can't get any help if you need it. I also think there's places, right, there's that kind of process in Matthew 18 where you confront them with one by yourself and then you get a couple more people and then you get the church. Uh, I do think that there are places where uh, maybe we need to skip steps, right? If something incredibly serious is going on in somebody's life and we find out about it and you wonder whether you confronting them alone is enough to address it, I think it's fine to go to step two and say, I'm going to take other people with me because this is so significant, uh, because I think Jesus there is giving us an example of how the church responds to sin, not necessarily a process we follow every single time. Um, did that make sense? Okay. Like, if someone calls you and says, I'm going to open fire on my wife and my children this afternoon. You should not say, well, Matthew 18 says I need to go over there first by myself and confront them about this. You should call the police and round up a posse and go over there. Can you give a more realistic example of what 
The outlandish ones are so much easier. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the way I look at it, is that, you know, for church, Matthew 18 deals with church discipline, right? Which would be, uh, discipline is like negative discipleship. Discipleship is positive in that you're helping somebody grow. Negative discipleship would be uh, you're helping them uh, move past sin or get out of sin or be corrected. Um, so that's, that's discipline. Normally when we think church discipline, we think of the point where a church throws somebody out. But that's the last step of church discipline. Really it starts a lot earlier than that. Anytime we correct one another in sin, we're doing discipline, church discipline, uh, because we're members of the same body whether it's local or Catholic, with a capital C, or lowercase c, sorry. Uh, so there's this spectrum for me when church discipline becomes important, and that is on the, on the one side, the y-axis, and I'm not great at math, so if I get this wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, it's the public nature of the sin. So if it's private, uh, there's less of a priority for the church to get involved. If it's public, there's a much greater priority for the church to get involved because in that case, uh, the name of Christ is being maligned in the community. So if somebody does something that's hugely sinful and hugely public, I think the church needs to get involved almost immediately. The other axis would be uh, the kind of grievous nature of the sin. You know, like, Did they lie to someone or are they committing adultery? And like, as we get further on this side of the grievous sin spectrum, church discipline becomes more important. As it becomes more public, it becomes more important. So can I use those things to think about an issue? Okay, how how quick should we be in this? If it's public, if it's not that significant, that's probably a one-on-one conversation. It's probably something that we can grow with someone over a period of time. If it is very public, uh, if it's very grievous, then we need to get involved immediately and start addressing these things now. There needs to be immediate repentance and, a, and an action plan for growth. Does that answer your question? I mean, I didn't give you a specific example, uh, but I, mean, I think also like using wisdom and discernment in those moments, you know, and like Jake talked about praying for that and, and believing that God is going to provide, right? James tells us if we ask, he is generous, and he'll give it to us. And so I think we'll know in those situations what we should do. But at the same time, I think the reality for us is uh, I don't think that we're in danger of getting too involved in each other's sin in our lives. We're in danger of not being involved enough. And so I think that for me sometimes... I want to rationalize, well, I don't really need to say that to them. I can give them some time before I've got to have this awkward conversation with someone that I kind of want to like me. And that instead we should just do it and trust God that it's going to go well. And that even if it doesn't, uh, he's still who he is and we're still who we are. I think that as uh, as Americans too, we definitely swing way too far to the uh, protected individualistic sort of mindset. So we got a long way we can swing back towards open, transparent, community sort of mindset. Before yeah. we've gone too far. <laughs> we got way, and, and, you know, part of that is that vulnerability on our part. I don't want to call somebody else out on their sin because that opens me up to being called out on fine. Yeah. Okay. You know, like, so if we're not prepared to be vulnerable and transparent with our own sin, then it just totally cripples us in confronting someone else as well. Yeah. I think the, the reality is, is that, you know, at least the, the pictured response in my head to someone calling out sin and someone else is the person saying, like, what, what right do you have to do that? Like, this is my life, this is my stuff, mind your own business. But the reality is, is that my sin, my sin, whether it's outward and public or inward, affects you. Because we're members of a body together. 
right? We are spiritually united in Christ as a local church. And so my sin affects you. It affects our church. It affects our worship. Your sin affects me, affects our church, affects our worship. And so, like, it's not this individualistic, isolated thing. It's a corporate matter. doesn't mean we should all air our dirty laundry all the time to everyone. But it does mean that we should recognize that in it, we do have the right to do that because it, it does affect us. I think that's clear here where James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Right? His, there, there is not an individualistic mindset in the New Testament. It is a collective mindset. Like For them, speaking evil against someone else was a huge deal because it, it affected the community. For us, I mean, we're entitled to do that because I is more important than we. I is more important than you. Uh, I think any, like, what if we started to view all of our communication as actually affecting people? Like even social media. I think one of the, one of the main reasons why social media is so popular is because we can say things on there uh, that we don't have the guts to say to someone in our life. So we go online, we post a comment, because we're really mad at somebody else, but we just trash, you know, Steve Thomas on Facebook, whoever that is. The reality is we would never say the kinds of things that we say on Facebook or Twitter in person to someone if they were sitting across the table from us. And when we gossip, we would probably never ever say the things that we say to those other people to that person if they were right there with us. I think the same goes to with like reading it and getting enjoyment out of it because I think that side also gets downplayed like yeah. okay, maybe we're not the ones doing it but we're just like reading through our news feed like oh this person just blew up on that person and we're yep. just like looking through all these comments and we want to know the whole story but that's just as bad like, yeah yeah I mean communication involves two people a sender and a receiver and we can be part of the evil even if we're just receiving it Observers, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about uh, earlier uh, in First Corinthians 13, uh, just how he describes love as bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. And when I think about uh, gossip and sometimes uh, fights that shouldn't, shouldn't be there at all just because we don't give grace to each other. Like, we don't, like... When I when I love somebody, I tend to bear with them. Uh, they, you know, just it was whatever. I, I I believe good motives about them. You know, I believe when they tell me that they were doing this, I, I really believe them. My person I'm upset with, when they tell me that they had false motives, and I'm in there like searching it out and still in my mindset of uh, accusation. But just when I when I love somebody, I I treat them like. You know, I endure, I bear with them, and I believe what they're saying to me. But uh, I just think that in trying to love our neighbors as ourselves and treat them with love, if we could have those qualities, a lot of stop before it started, too. Yeah. If instead of speaking evil, we're actively trying to love them, and we won't speak evil, or at least do it less. I think that I was a lot of times I'm really quick to believe gospel for myself that you know, Christ became my sin and I get to become his righteousness, but I'm pretty slow sometimes to believe that he like really believe that he did that for other people. You know, like uh, you know, they they have the righteousness of Christ too, like and not not that, that absolves them from being confronted on things, but the way that we can do that and be willing to, like David said, to be vulnerable to our son being called out, you can say, yeah, you're right. I was wrong with that. But, you know, Christ died for my son and he died for yours. If, if your brothers, like he's talking about, and you can reconcile together. Before we kind of move 
to the Lord's Supper. Does anybody have any more comments or questions or anything that you think we should talk about about this text that we haven't? Okay, I mean, if you've you've been at BC for a while, you know that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week because we know that we are people who need to be continually and constantly reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the Lord's Supper is just a, a visible way for us to do that. I think that another way that it could function this week for some of us is just the reality that, you know, Jesus in the Gospels, he talks about people uh, who are at the temple who are ready to worship God. And like they know that there is sin between them and someone else. And he tells them that like what they should do is they should leave their gift at the altar. They should leave the altar and go and reconcile with that person and then come back and worship. And Paul, you know, in a similar way, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he talks about how the fact that, that we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner, that it is, it's bad for us uh, to celebrate his death uh, when we have unrepentant sin, when we have unresolved issues with other people, when we're not uh, living the way he calls us to live. That doesn't mean we need to be perfect, right? Because if we were perfect, no one would ever go to the table. Uh, but I would just encourage you today to uh, pray about those things a little more intentionally, right? The reality is, is that there are Sundays, there are weeks when we probably shouldn't take the Lord's Supper, right? We should just stay seated, and then after church, deal with something that we should have dealt with before church. Uh, I think that we should be okay with that as a body. And, and when that happens, not say, you know, Matt didn't take the Lord's Supper today. There's got to be something going on. But just trust that like, he's, he's following Jesus just like we're trying to. Uh, and maybe today you need to go and apologize to someone for speaking evil against them. Maybe you need to go and apologize to them for gossiping with them. Uh, maybe you can't do that. Maybe they're not here and you need to do that later. But I would just encourage you to uh, confess and repent of ways in which you've sinned uh, in these areas before you take the Lord's Supper today. Uh, because I think it'll be a better reminder for you of who Jesus is and what he's done after you've done that than if you just gloss over the sin in your heart instead of confessing it. So I'm going to pray. Uh, and Dan's going to come and play while we take the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that you give us the freedom to gather together as believers every week. And that we don't only have the freedom to gather, but we have the freedom to gather in different ways. We can celebrate together and study your word together and worship you together for who you are and what you've done for us in the freedom that we have in Christ and celebrating together our common union in him. I pray now that as we take the Lord's Supper, as we commune with one another and with you in light of your son's death on our behalf. I pray that you would send your spirit to truly convict us of sin. That you would produce in us not worldly sorrow or worldly shame or guilt, but that you would produce repentance in us. That we would confess to you and confess to others if we need to and turn from our sin and believe the truth of the gospel. Jesus, we thank you that you obeyed perfectly. That you always loved your neighbor as yourself and that you never spoke evil against someone else. And because of your perfect obedience, we can have forgiveness. We can have grace. And yet even though we know that we don't have to obey perfectly, you do tell us to obey. 
So help us to turn from our sin this week. Help us to lean in together to loving our neighbors as we should. And help us now to celebrate your death rightly through the Lord's Supper. Jesus, in your name we pray.